Before we begin, I'd just like to remind you that this episode is also available as a video. So if you'd like to check out myself and Andy in all our uh, glory, then head over to youtube.com forward slash at Pottywood. Hello everybody and welcome once again to another Zoom powered, because the other place let us down, episode of Pottywood, the show where we talk about movies and Yes, that, uh, where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I am one of your hosts, Steve Hester, and joining me, as always, on the other side of the screen is... Well, that would be me, Andrew Roger Carson, yet again, back this week. And it's, yes, it's Zoom. It's what we are having to deal with for this moment. Oh, is that my vodka? Thank you very much. Cheers. So, yeah. That makes a change. I haven't got anything for tonight. I may get something later during the interval. We'll see. <laughs> what about the drink? Okay. Uh, well, I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. Oh, and speaking of being in her shoes, Steve. Which uh, stars Tony Collette as a woman called Rose and her sister Maggie played by Cameron Diaz. And then the two of them are more or less estranged and constantly butting heads. Maggie wants to go out and have a good time and sleep around and get drunk and not have any kind of responsibility. Whereas Rose is the the older, the more wiser, the more sensible sister, the lawyer, the ever-organized. The two basically are an odd couple and they eventually end up butting heads right after Maggie decides that she's going to sleep with Rose's boyfriend. Or at least pseudo boyfriend, anyway. Um, and the two basically split up uh, and are rejoined when Maggie discovers a long lost grandmother that they didn't even know. I thought the first half of the film was a lot less entertaining than the second half. I thought when things started changing, round about, I'd say, round about the half hour, 40 minute mark and the two end up separating, that the movie actually became more interesting. Up until then, they were just bickering sisters. And then the second half of the movie, Maggie starts to turn her life around under the support of her grandmother, who lives in a uh, in an old folks kind of centre, a commune, or whatever you'd call it, residence, residential park thing somewhere in Florida. And the two eventually come together in the end and they patch things up and they get to the, the bottom of these deep-seated family issues. Um, overall, though, I, I actually found this movie rather bland. Bland? Bland, yeah. I, I liked the, the two previous Curtis Hansen movies that we watched, which were The Wonder Boys and L.A. Confidential. I thought both of those were funny and interesting and dramatic and action-packed and and at the very least they had i'd say more interesting stories i thought that the actual basic story of this even though it was very very well performed i can't take anything away from Cameron diaz i definitely can't take anything away from tony collette who just seems to be always amazing but actually kind of felt like she was sleepwalking through some of this um and I can't even take anything away from uh, Shirley MacLaine, who, who, you know, played a good part as their grandmother. Um, but the whole thing just, it felt very safe. It wasn't really as dramatic as it could have got, given the basic premise and the, the way that emotionally things... compromising is what you would no. say. No, things in the end are actually wrapped up a little bit too neatly even though there is some issues and it just isn't as funny as it could be either well i think it's more nice yeah. it's not really supposed to be a comedy i think it's more a drama yeah movie. yeah but at the same time it doesn't go too far into the dramatic territory like i would have liked to not with what? this kind of story if you're gonna get if you're gonna get such a tried and tested story is this then you want to do something kind of interesting with it and dynamic with it you go solid in one direction or the other but this is just seems very flat and kind of safe and not offensive in the slightest but then again it's not really exciting either 
Uh, and I will say for Curtis Hansen, and we have covered Curtis Hansen a couple of times mm -hmm. on our show uh, over the course of the last year. I mean, it's there fundamentally sound with his movies. I still yeah. think LA Confidential is his best movie uh, in his mm -hmm. resume before we lost him, obviously. Um, and like you said before, uh, the performances are faultless, really. Um, I mean, Tony Collette, um, I, I think she's incredibly dependent on what any movie you put her in. She's like the the uh, alternate Sandra Bullock. You can kind of put her in anything, and you'll you'll get a satisfactory performance out of her. And I think um, that's why I thought she was wasted. She just it, it yeah, felt beneath her. To be perfectly honest, obviously mentioning Cameron Diaz, who is like the cinema delight back on the day. Yeah, and, uh, is making her comeback from retirement now, from what I hear. Um, I like in this, I mean, they try to give her, you know, some kind of gritty areas with her character of being like the, the family screw up and things like that. I think Cameron Diaz, her strength really relies on the roles like, um, Vanilla Sky, like but the role she played in Vanilla Sky for one. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have her role in being John Malkovich, which is incredible. Um, this probably was a very safe role for Cameron Diaz, you know. Mm. Um, but it's always great to see Shirley MacLaine. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, this this was, uh, I'd even say this is a safe Shirley MacLaine role, really. That that I think is the the underlying thing behind it all is it, everything is safe, everything yeah. the the parts are in safe hands with safe actors. You've got a safe director with a safe script, and I think that's the problem with it all. Is it is? Yeah, I mean, Tony Collette was originally attached as the Cameron Diaz character. Really? Yes, and um, in the role that Tony Collette would go on to play was originally cast as Sarah Michelle Geller, but Sarah Michelle Geller uh, dropped out of the movie and it resulted in Tony Collette switching the role and then bringing in Cameron Diaz. You know what? I think I probably would have preferred to have seen that. Because... I think we prefer to see Sarah Michelle Geller in anything nowadays. We miss, we miss her. Praise you to Tony Collette. I mean, she put on, I think it was £25 for this role. Did she? Yeah, yeah, she she purposely made herself. She did the Renee Zellweger, Bridget Jones diet, you know, to uh, fill yourself out more for the role. And then, you know, so she looked like that. So when she is losing weight in the movie, she is actually losing the weight. Yeah, you can definitely see a noticeable physical shift from where she starts to where she ends. Uh, and you know, there's there's a lot that can be said for the character in that as well. The character's much happier. Everyone's much happier by the end of it as well. Um, however, speaking as the end, there's there's one shot where Tony Collette and her new husband are driving off in the cab, and Cameron Diaz stands in the middle of the road, waving her off. And all I wanted was just a car to come out of nowhere, like at the end of Scary Movie, and just. Uh, I do have some history on this movie. One, I mean, it was a hit. It grossed mm -hmm. eighty three million. It had a thirty five million budget. So. It didn't make its money back and then some. But in a bizarre bit of uh, fact, uh, this was a, probably the first movie that was released on DVD and not released on VHS. Ooh. Oh. Oh. Do you mean not released on D VHS at all? At all. At all. Ah, right, because I was going to say, I know that Armageddon came out on DVD first for ages before it... Oh, no, but that was available on VHS. on VHS. In Her yeah. Shoes was the first movie to not go to VHS and was exclusive for DVD. Mm. Uh, signing off In Her Shoes, it's... It's I guess like I said, it's it's safe. It's nothing that is going to test you too much. It's nothing that is going to stretch you. It didn't really feel like it was stretching the people that were involved at the same time it's a really inoffensive film that doesn't well it it just doesn't do much it's if it's on you can probably watch it and say oh yeah watch that yes and then never really give a thought to it ever again and it's on disney plus if you it's on disney plus yeah if you, if you want a good 
is it a chick flick? Would you class it as a, a chick flick? Um, I, I would, insofar as the, the entire cast is made up primarily of women. Um, that seems to be the main thing about a chick flick is one, there has to be romance, and two, there has to be some kind of inter-female rivalry. It definitely passes the Black Bechdel test anyway. The Bechdel test. I was waiting for you, you to know. bring that yeah. Okay. Well, that is in your shoes, and uh, and now we move on to until the end of the world of Wim Wenders. Yes. Yeah, strap yourself in, folks, because this is going to be a wild ride. It's a sci-fi film, um, about a woman called Claire, who meets a guy that she knows as Trevor, um, in a garage somewhere in the middle of the south of France. And she then develops a, a thing for him and then sets out around the world to track him down. All the while, uh, there's bounty hunters and, and shady government people that are trying to track him down as well. And the whole movie is exploring what you'll go through for an obsession. What is it that has their hooks into you? And it's dealt, everyone has got their own kind of obsession within the film. Her obsession is Sam, as he becomes known. Sam's obsession is pleasing his father. His father's obsession is his work. Sam Neill, who plays Eugene, Claire's former partner, he's obsessed with her. Everyone has some kind of an obsession, and the movie touches on them to a lesser or stronger degree. It's it's a road movie, like you said last time, Um I think you described it as the ultimate road movie, and there is a yes. certain amount of truth in that. There's a lot of globetrotting everywhere from the south of France to uh, Germany, Moscow, China, Japan, San Francisco, Australia. Um, and there's some really pretty vistas in this, I'm not going to deny. What I feel like the movie is, more than anything else, is it's three films, at least, that have kind of been smushed into one. So first you've got the story of a woman going around the world trying to track someone down. Uh, then you've got the the scientist that's trying to perfect his device of being able to allow blind people to see images. Uh, then you've got the story of the end of the world, and that can apply not really equally, but partially to both halves of the film. But the second half of the film is an almost entirely different beast from the first. The first is this globetrotting road movie. The second half is more or less all in one place in Australia, in this beautiful little gully in the middle of nowhere that looks Cooper like Petty. some... It, yeah, well, Cooper Petty, mate. It's a frustrating one because I like the ideas in it. I like the thought of there being this camera that can help blind people see and that there's a government agency that wants to track it down and get hold of it, but it's never really said what they're going to do with it. Um, there's a section where there's this whole thing about recording and viewing your dreams and becoming addicted to that and that kind of fueling another level of, of obsession. But that comes so far at the end of the movie as to almost be completely removed from the rest of the storyline. I want to see that all being built up. I want there to be more to this worldwide chase between all these different characters. But the characters just kind of pop up in one side of the world and then vanish and suddenly pop out another side of the world and then vanish. And it just gets repeated on and on and on. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of rhyme and reason at times as to why they're going to where they are and what they're doing, other than the fact that the filmmaker said, I want to go here and film here and do this. It's frustrating as well, because there are so many scenes in there where it just plays out in long masters, which lasts for two, three minutes at a time with long, long silences just punctuated by this soundtrack, which admittedly has got some phenomenal names in there. R.E.M., Peter Gabriel. Um, talking Heads. Talking Heads, right there at the beginning. You too. It's it's yeah, a chair. who's who of, of who was popular back in the early 90s. Um, but at the same time, it says at the beginning that there is a three-hour, they called it a Reader's Digest version of this film. 
Yes. I think there should be a Reader's Digest of this film. Because as pretty as you've seen it. it, No. As pretty as it is, as long as as the movie is, I think it would be a much better watch if it was shorter. I've seen that version. And until you see the 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 five hour version of it, you don't realize how much of that story is lost, and how butchered it was. And I've always recommended to people that they need to see this five hour uh, version of this film. And to be honest, I mean, this film was released. The original version was released in nineteen ninety one. Uh, Wim Wenders kept the full version of this and was showing it exclusively at museums and uh, art shows and things like that. Um, and the, the three-hour version was critically mauled when it came out. When this five-hour version came out, it was reappraised by critics to be a masterpiece. That is the difference in it. I... Because what you've got to look at here with Wim Wenders, and if you know Wim Wenders' films, I mean, he spent 14 years trying to get this movie made. Uh, it cost $23 million to bring it to the screen. As, as we mentioned, there was 15 different cities over four continents. Mm. No other film has gone to that level before. And when you consider that he had to use brand new crews in every single place that he went to, he didn't even have the same crews for every no, single I, I can appreciate the logistical headache behind it all. However, I can't help but feel that you have to ask yourself, why is he going to these places beyond the fact that he wanted to go there? What is it about going to China that helped them with carry on the story? What is it that made them, uh, that was about Tokyo that made them, uh, made that suitable for carrying on the story? Why did they then have to go to San Francisco to carry on the story? What is it about going to those places which ultimately drives the story forward? And realistically, when you look at the story of him trying to gather family photos with this using this special helmet, it's not really necessary to go to all these places to tell that tale. It feels like it feels like none of this was addressed at the script stage and it was allowed to bleed through into the actual production stage. And it, and you mentioned last time about um about pretending it was a Zack Snyder movie and one thing which I have always said about Zack Snyder movies is he is in desperate need of an editor he needs someone to say to him no <laughs> yeah no, no no you're going way too far with this one and I think that's what it needed here now I can't speak for the three-hour version because obviously I've not seen it but all I am seeing in my head is that there is a story here which could be told within those three hours. Not necessarily that it could be told with what they shot. It would need yeah. to be shot for a three-hour film to begin with. That Wim Wenders' rough cut of this movie was 20 hours long. Yeah. So no. he shot an entire series, basically, going around with Claire uh, Solvig, uh, De Martin who was also in Wings of Desire. And then you've got, obviously, your international talent. You bring in William Hurt. No stranger to science fiction. I, I, I don't think it's one of his... It's a characteristic William Hurt performance. Yeah. You know, the only time I've really seen him step out of that comfort zone is when he did uh, History of Violence, which he was phenomenal in. And uh, another movie called Second Best, which he is brilliant in as well. And then you've got Sam Neill, you know, who you all know from Jurassic Park, Alan Grant. Great in Jurassic Park and not so great in Jurassic Park Dominion. No. <laughs> Give me the money. The absolute or Hunt of the World of People, is, uh, which is brilliant. Max Maxwell Max von Sydow. Of course. Up at the end as his dad. And he's wonderfully unhinged as he usually is in his characters. And yet again, I think that I think that was another thing as well. I can't speak for a lot of them, but there are some there are some performances in this that are just dreadful such as her her neighbor who i recognize actually from beetlejuice who was who's appalling um the the guy who who played winters the the bounty hunter he was all right but at the same time he wasn't the aborigine guy 
wasn't setting the screen on fire. They were both from. Sorry, I bought myself a fidget spinner. We. Okay. Uh, they were both from the Crocodile Dundee films because, of course, they were, because it was the Crocodile yeah. Dundee films. Um, but apart from, uh, there's not really a, an awful lot of emotion in the first half of the film either that to drag you in. A lot uh, of it I, is I, it's quite I, dour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the thing with this, I mean, from the story I was told, uh, apparently the producers of the movie eventually had to pull the plug because Wenders still wanted to include Africa and South America in, mm. in uh, a kind of uh, an epilogue and an ending scene. Um, but the film does have some interesting things. I mean, it has a very early Satnav car Satnav. Yeah technology in there that was predicted well and yes it's got that driving through sulfur thing of where it kind of like says you're leaving your safe zone yes <laughs> run but, um, run bitch but the fact that he took this full version this this full version from 1993 until 2015 he was taking it to museums and everywhere and screening it and it was only when criterion uh decided to remaster it for a 4k um uh, and speaking of remastering, I mean, this movie also had the use of very early high-definition video, mm. um, which is one of the earliest cases of it. Uh, Warner Brothers ended up releasing this. Uh, they picked it up as a negative pickup, and they released it on four screens. Wow. Wow. This goes to prove four how screens. much they had in it. Yeah. The worldwide total that this film made on a $23 million budget $830,000. Oi. I mean, it is a very experimental movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it is, it's really of its time and it is a movie, I guess you'd call it a cult, but I think it's more rediscovered and I think it is a more, in the same way that Zack Snyder's Justice League is a more revolutionary film than the Josh Whedon uh, just yeah. now i do come to these reviews and we did have this discussion earlier in the week i do come to these reviews with as much of an open mind as possible and a lot of what i was joking about last week about oh it's a five hour long movie was you know joke it was acting up for the show um but i i i i can't honestly say that i hated this because i like the ideas that are here it's just frustrating that you have to sit through such a slog before they actually start to develop and show themselves it just it, it, it annoyed me simply that you can look at something like the justice league and say okay i see what's happening from the get-go and i see where you where you're building to but you don't even get to know what the this device this camera is about until the two hour mark of this film which is a long time to wait before you actually get that information. So that's my take on it anyway. It, it, it It's frustrating for me in many ways because I can see what I would like it to, to have been in my head, but it's not what was there on the screen. And as what's there on the screen, it, it just, yeah, it frustrated me more than anything else. Well, you, you did like some of it. Which is a good thing, you know. The, yeah. You like the ideas that were on play, and you know, for me, I am a big fan of this version of Until the End of the World. I waited so many years after hearing that a version of this existed. Um, I found a soundtrack to it on CD in a secondhand store. Was it on one and... of those square CDs that are in the car, <laughs> which I think looked great? Yeah, and um. I've got to admit, I fell in love with the soundtrack to this film, which gave me more of an appreciation of it. I'm sure I still have that soundtrack on CD somewhere. And um, that's what kind of made it for me stick in the memory for all these years. And when I finally saw the full version on my big screen, of course, um, it I, it felt justified to, to have its space as a certified fresh movie. Well, anyway, I mean, that is what's in the box for this week. You know, yes. it was a very long what's in the box uh, for a very long movie and in her shoes also. Uh, so without further ado, those anniversaries on the go. 
watch them again all of the time or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. It is the anniversary section. Looking at the movies that were released this week over the decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go back from the 1980s this week all the way to, I guess, probably 20 years. Maybe. Uh, well, you tell maybe. me. This is your segment. You know, know what it is that you're doing. A bit rusty. bit rusty. I obviously don't. No. But no. you do. No. Well, uh, well, this is the kind of surprise. Um, so uh, let's start back. Uh, when we were young kids, we're going to go all the way back to the 1980s, 1984 this week. Do, 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 do. Can you believe, Steve, it's been 40 years since the movie Silkwood was released? Has you, it? Don't know, you? You, you don't know what Silkwood is at all. No. Do you? You no. Philistine. Okay. Was, was that a prequel to uh, Torchwood or? <laughs> no. This was uh, based on a true story. Uh, it's a true story of Karen Silkwood, who was a, a nuclear factory whistleblower and a labor union activist. This was directed by uh, a name that pops up every once in a while on our show, Mike Nichols. Mm. Uh, you may know him as the director of the fantastic The Graduate or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is another fantastic movie of his. Uh, and this was his first movie in a long time. He hadn't directed in quite a while. So this movie was kind of a career resurgence for him. And of course, uh, playing the role of Karen Silkwood would be Meryl Streep, of course. Hey! The, the, the greatest, wonder that is Meryl Streep. Yes, the, the greatest act, living actress in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, Apart from Sue Pollard. Oh, God. <laughs> Sue Pollard. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. this was uh, uh, the, the true story uh, of Karen Silkwood. It would also star Kurt Russell uh, taking a step into a more dramatic role. I think this was the first time he'd really done a dramatic role. He'd stepped out of the uh, Snake Plissken Escape from New York uh, role, which is probably what he was best known as at the time, and probably his best role ever, I will say, controversially. Yeah. Uh, I think for young Kurt Russell, you've got to go with Escape from New York. For old Kurt Russell, you've got to go with Bone Tomahawk. If you've not seen Bone Tomahawk yet, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I've heard about Bone Tomahawk. It sounds quite stomach-churning, to be honest. It is. Uh, And also in this movie, it turned out to be the first dramatic role for Cher. Oh, right. Yes. So uh, This was prior to Mask, then, I take it. Yes, this was yeah. uh, just prior to Mask by a couple of years. Obviously, uh, a few years before Oscar-winning turn in Moonstruck, which is uh, another fabulous film. Um, what happened to a co-star in that? I have no idea. No. Um, but yeah, th- this was the first time we'd all seen Cher really de-glamorized, you know, because she was the, the kind of pop princess and stuff like that. So... In this, she's gone for a really kind of grungy look and really dramatic role. Her and Meryl Streep got on really well uh, and became good friends, which obviously you can see they're still showing up together in stuff like Mamma Mia <laughs> and things like that. Uh, and strangely enough, they were both in uh, that Farrelly Brothers movie, Stuck on You, in, in cameos as themselves. Yeah, I, I, I haven't actually seen Stuck on You, so... It's kind of common. Yeah. It's a one-joke movie, but it's all right. Yeah. Um, obviously, Most of their stuff uh, is, let's be honest. Th- this movie has um, quite a bit of history. Uh, I was doing a bit of reading up on it uh, because obviously it was all about uh, the nuclear factory workers and, and the real Karen Silkwood who uh, mysteriously died in a car crash um, right. after being the, the whistleblower, but also she was... Uh, in an accident at the nuclear factory, she was radiated by 40 times a usual dose of radiation. Wow. In fact, in her East Texas grave, uh, still to this day, a couple of years ago, people went to her grave uh, with a Geiger counter and it still emits enough radiation from her grave. Wow. Yes. Holy crap. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's quite something. But um, it's notable for a few things. 
Um, oh, I'll get it out of the way first. Yes, this is Meryl Streep's only nude role that she has ever done. I had no idea she'd even done a nude role. Yes, about she's very uncomfortable. She flashes her breasts at one of the co-workers uh, in a scene. <laughs> the development of this film took nine years uh, following Karen Sigurd's death to be told. It started off being at Warner Brothers. Uh, I think Jane Fonda's company was involved with it at some point. Um, basically, Warner Brothers ended up dropping the film because the producer, uh, Buzz Hirsch, uh, ended up being subpoenaed uh, in court uh, to disclose all of the research materials uh, that they'd had. So the, the actual nuclear company, um, basically they threatened legal action um, right. over anything in the film being the least bit fantasized. Everything had to be incredibly factual with no accusations or anything like that there, there were certain scenes that had to be cut out that leaned too far into the company kind of being responsible so the production of this film uh, actually set a legal precedent uh, regarding uh, the protection of confidential sources for filmmakers under the first amendment Warner Bros didn't come back to it it was actually ABC that picked it up um following uh, Warner Brothers backing out of it over the whole subpoena thing. And it was got a limited theatrical release at first, but then it went on to gross, I think it was $35 million, and it, it became a critically um, received, well-received film. It even got nominated for five Oscars, uh, and it didn't win any of the Oscars. But this is one of those rare occurrences where Meryl Streep is nominated for an Oscar and doesn't, doesn't win. Yeah. No, and Cher was nominated as well. It was her first dramatic role, and she was nominated. Um, and rightfully, Kurt Russell should have been as well. Uh, the screenplay was the first ever screenplay for Nora Ephron. I know that name. I can't tell you what what it is that she's written, well, but I know that name. Across the screen right now is a list of credits that Steve should actually know, <laughs> but he doesn't. But he will do when this edit comes along. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it it's a really good movie, really underappreciated movie as well, and a fantastic showcase for Meryl Streep uh, and for Cher and for Kurt Russell and Mike Nichols as well. Obviously, he, he had a career resurgence. Um, so every film that he directed after Silkwood is directly because of the Silkwood success. Um it is a really tense movie, and it's all based in fact, and, and I would recommend that you, you hunt this film down. And yes, it is in the box. Okay. Right. So I guess after that, we're heading on to 1994. Uh, no, I'm going to come back to 1994 because I want to finish strong on this one. I'm okay. actually going to jump ahead. 2004 because I cannot let this be the last film in the anniversaries this See, week. I mess about with the formula. I get a ton of shit. You mess about with it all the time and you don't get anything. No, you'll understand why. Right, uh, okay, in, fine. In, in 2004, <sighs> Go on. a movie called You Got Served was released. Oh, that rings a bell. For some reason, I want to if you've want seen to say, this, I'm going to be so disappointed in you. No, no, no. I just mean the the name. It's either a basketball movie or it's got Queen Latifah in it or it's a basketball movie with Queen Latifah in it. One of the two. <laughs> Wrong on both counts. But, okay. Is it um, dancing? I, I can forgive you for thinking that because the cover would make you believe that the cover of the DVD would make you believe it is like a basketball movie, but it's not. It is among the first wave of street dancing movies. Oh, yeah. No, I've not yes. seen it. I've not seen it, but I know the type. Like, Step Up to Das Streets. Yes. Which, yeah, all which that. was kind of on Don't the back of the success funny. of this. Yeah. Now, this movie, uh, I'm uh, respect to the people in it, but the movie is terrible. It is it's no breaking to the, Electric Boogaloo. The, 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 the dance scenes are spectacular as, as they were. You know, you see him on Britain's Got Talent for free. Um, but the acting is is terrible. 
Um, the direction's not much better. It was directed by a guy called Chris Stokes. Now, Chris Stokes was actually the business manager of all of the performers in this movie. Okay. So obviously he was you know, wanting to push them out there. So you had, let's see if I can get the names right, Omarion, right? And the only Omarion, thing... <laughs> I love your lovely locks, Omarion. <laughs> Let down your trestles from your castle. (laughs) Somewhere out there, his friends are giving him shit for that right now. (laughs) The the only other thing I'd ever seen Omarion in, they did that Fat Albert movie with Keenan Thompson. It was equally as terrible. Um, A terrible idea. It'd be more terrible with uh, Bill Cosby in it, obviously. I also had uh, Gerald Houston, who went on to do Step Up to the Streets. He was in that as well. Uh, Rasby as well. So, so they were all just these, these street dancers in it. Um, Aaliyah, uh, the pop princess, was originally a, a role was created for her. Tragically, yeah. she died in a plane crash uh, before the film uh, properly went into production. But this movie did introduce us to Kevin Federline. You see what you did, movie? You see? This is why we can't have nice things. No. The the strange thing about this, I mean, is the sizable hit that it was in the window that it was released in. This movie grossed $48 million on an $8 million budget. Wow. And what's even more amazing about that, this movie became the number one movie and made all that money on Super Bowl weekend of 2004. Okay. Well, I know nothing about the Super Bowl, so it really doesn't mean Generally, much to you me. You don't release a movie around that time. No. <laughs> you release no. the trailers. But you don't you release, release the trailers, yeah, and, and really cool adverts featuring the, the save, people from the movies. The saving grace about this film, and there isn't one, but the one saving grace there is about this movie is the parodies that it has had ever since it's released. It has been parodied on South Park. It was parodied in the Wayans movie Dance Flick, specifically. And you know, you know that you are taking a drubbing when Meet the Spartans parodies you. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. God. Um, it's not a great movie. It's not. It's like there was another film I saw in 2000 called Center Stage. It was all about like the dancing and or ballet or whatever it was, and that was just horribly acted. It felt so bad for Zoe Saldana, and it I was like, oh god, scrubbed that off his CV. I just found out today that Zoe Saldana was in Crossroads with Britney Spears. Yes, she was. Didn't even know that. I just saw a picture of it in in on Reddit today. There she was. I know. Uh, but yeah, you got served. Uh, it's not a, a movie kind of worth hunting down. I suppose if you like street dancing, then. It's great, you know. It, it's great for that choreography and stuff like that. But the, the movies that are the most cliched dance movies. You, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. You know, it's hard yeah. to say this, but Step Up is an actual better movie than this. So it's a Step Up. Yeah, Step yeah. Up Revolution is a better movie yeah. than this. That's saying all something. Right. Uh, so right, yes, then. twenty years ago, uh, you got served a bunch of shit. So what's um, next? Are we are we going to 2014 or are we uh, leaving that one and going back to the 90s? No, because we only had three this week. Uh, okay. I really didn't want to talk about the butterfly effect after we kind of said what we needed to say about it last week. Uh, so I'm going to go back to 1994. Uh, this is a movie, a very underappreciated movie, cult classic. I, I think we can definitely call this a cult classic. So in 1994, this week, a low-budget science fiction horror movie called Death Machine was released. Okay. Uh, the name rings a very vague bell, but it doesn't. it's not one that I've come across now. Okay. Well, Death Machine uh, was the first ever movie of Stephen Norrington. Right. Uh, who would go on to direct Blade. Blade. Yeah. to direct, uh, well, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we, were, we were mentioning that one. Uh, but yeah, he had uh, been an effects technician um, throughout the 80s on some huge films. So he'd worked for Stan Winston, for Rick Baker, for, for Dick Smith. 
he'd been an effects and creature technician on Aliens, uh, Alien mm -hmm. 3, Young Sherlock Holmes, Gremlins, Return to Oz, huge, huge movies. You know, and basically he, he got this idea that he had shown to uh, some executives for this low budget um, science fiction movie. And um, they, they really liked it. They, they managed to get him a budget of 500,000, which is not a lot of money. In no, that's chicken feed. It is chicken feed or independence. It really but, is. You know, he made up for it by making this incredibly um, violent and stylistic horror movie, sci-fi horror movie, uh, which starred uh, Brad Dourif in mm -hmm. probably his most maniacal role you've ever seen. Um, it, is it his best? No, I'll go with uh, Lord of the Rings. I think his work in Lord of the Rings is just incredible. Serious Wormtongue, was it, or something like Grima that? Grima Wormtongue. Grima Wormtongue, yeah. Yes. Um, or if, if you've seen him in Deadwood, the series Deadwood and, and Deadwood the movie. Or Chucky. Uh, and it also starred uh, the uh, Australian actress, uh, I'll get her name right, Ely Puget. Uh, Bless the you. Only thing you. You may have seen her in, yeah, thank you, was uh, The Lawnmower Man 2, but a lot of people never admit to seeing oh, God, The no. Lawnmower Man 2. No, 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 no. I, I could barely stomach The Lawnmower Man 1, and there's no chance yeah, I was going to go out there and watch Matt Frewer do whatever it was <laughs> he was doing with that. Matt Frewer dream on a bad day. Jesus uh, Christ, yeah. A sci-fi horror Max movie in the early nineties called *The Rift*, uh, which is a, a tough film to find, but it is out there. But this film also featured, and I, this is a special one for you, Steve, William Hootkins. William Hootkins. You know that name, don't you? Where? Where do I know that name from? Well, he's an American-British actor, but you will know him. As Porkins in Star Wars A New Hope. Oh, right. Okay. That will probably be the only other thing that I might have ever possibly have seen him in ever. With the <laughs> exception of... From behind. So, yeah, I mean, this is a story about Brad Dourif's twisted, demented character who is... He was a child genius who's grown up to be this really demented and sick and twisted guy who creates these weapons for this company. And... Um, one day he just goes absolutely crazy and creates this death machine, which is one of the most Im impressive um, mixtures of stop motion and actual hydraulic machines that goes around killing people in this building that is trapped in this building. Uh, right. And it was all shot at Pinewood Studios here in the UK. Right. Um, uh, and it is excessively violent, but it, it wears its heart on its sleeve for sure. Some of the characters in there, uh, their character names I picked up on this one, watching it again the other week. So you've got, wait for it, Jack Dante. Jesus Christ. Scott Ridley. Really? Yes. Ridley Scott. And just to be subtle, one called John Carpenter. Really? <laughs> so these are these are. There's no one called Cameron James in there or, no, you know. no. Uh, Lucas it, George. It is noticeable that this movie has the first on-screen roles for Richard Brake, who obviously went on to do Doom as the uh, nasty psychotic. Oh robot. yeah, uh, but it also had the uh, the first acting debut of Rachel Weisz in a small role. Oh right, yeah, oh, right. Um, Death Machine has been banned in several countries. Um, for what was deemed excessive violence, uh, especially for an elevator scene, which is one of the most wince-inducing scenes you'll ever see in this clip right here. I mean, sadly, it ended up in a lot of countries going straight to video in a very edited version of it, but the, mm. the full version is now being released. Um, I don't think it got a theatrical release in the US. I don't think it got a theatrical release in uh the UK, I think it went straight to video in both, but in Japan it was absolutely, you know, a huge moneymaker. No, um, I could uh, probably understand that because the Japanese tolerance for violence is definitely a lot higher oh, than ours. God. Tetsuo the Iron Man. Oof. The, some Jesus. of the stuff which, oh, Rutsuki yeah. Doji. Oh, Jesus. Oh, the sadness. Oh. But um, yeah. I mean, this was the movie that got Stephen Norton the job on Blade. You know, so that when you see Blade, you see all the influence that Death Machine had. Uh, the movie 
is a favorite of mine. I, I do love this movie because for me, it was like, you really did this for 500,000? I mean, this looks like it must have cost four or five million. You know, he really, really made the most out of it. And it's great because you do not see, he takes the alien approach, which is obviously the Ridley Scott approach. If yeah. You do not see all of this thing at once. It's towards the end when you actually get to see the full extent of what this machine is. And it is an amazingly designed monster that I'm sure Rob Bottin and Stan Winston will be so proud of. Yeah, well, if he's already got a, a background in special effects and he'll know about how to light that, build that, and how to oh, make yeah. that look look as impressive as possible for as little outlay as possible. It's just a wild, fun movie to have um, included this week. Yeah, and it's not critically acclaimed, but it is on the cult right, radar. So I would, uh, I would definitely love to draw attention to this movie and people should go and check it out. I think you'll have a wide ride with it. Well, depending on how much we've been able to squeeze in and how much YouTube will actually let us put out there, um, you may be seeing all kinds of gore stuff, or you may not. Um, but I tell you, there's one thing that you will be finding out, though. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, what's in the box? that time again it comes around quickly doesn't it well not for the people watching but uh for the rest of us uh what's in the box is the part of the show where andy is going to pull out the name of a movie that is certified fresh on rotten tomatoes or is certified interesting on rotten tomatoes however back in the old days we did only used to do the one now we're going to be doing two just like we did on the opening of the show so the whole plan is if he pulls out ones that I have seen, then just keeps on pulling out names until we find one that I haven't, and then I go away and watch them before we record the next episode. Oh. Simples. Sim- Simples. Simple. Simple. Right. Okay. Let's cue the music. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Okay. What's in the box this week? Now, our record is, what, five that you've seen in a row? Five, yes. So we, we haven't had anything as good. So that was that was a long time ago. So now... It was, yeah. Let's see. So our first is... <laughs> oh, my God. This may need a special cameo to join us on this show. Steve. Right. Have you seen from... I think it's 1987 or 88. Okay. It's a wild card. Oh, shit. It's Back to the Beach. No, I've never even heard of that one. Back to the Beach is uh, the main starring role for Tommy Hinckley. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, hopefully, yeah, we could get him back on and we can discuss that. I'm telling, him, do a whole, I'm telling him later. Whole show about that. Yes. Okay, so that is one. That's one. one. So that's one for right. next week. Okay. So you've got a comedy. It's cool. Uh, okay. Tell him. Are you ready for number two? No. But you're going to do it anyway, so. Oh, well, it's another comedy. Okay, promising start. Steve. Yeah. Have you seen Wedding Crashes? No, I haven't actually. Oh. Well, no. Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, you have yeah. Wedding Crashes for the next okay. week. Okay. And and they're oh. both under two hours apiece. Exactly. I'm assuming. Uh, <laughs> so we've got some know. comedy next week. Maybe I can convince Tommy Hinckley to come and join us for it. Who knows? Let's uh Let's put a call out there and have our regular Tommy yes. come back and talk about uh, Hi, Tommy. Maybe we can get some uh, stories behind it while we're doing it. Maybe. Uh, but even if we don't, that is going to be something to look forward to next time. Uh, so, all right. Oh, two comedies. That's usually unusual because we normally get a drama, a couple of dramas, occasionally a comedy, but we don't usually get two coming out at the same time. Yeah. Well, in fairness, you've got kind of a PG comedy 
and an R-rated comedy. So at least you've got one to watch with the family. All right, then. Uh, right. So, well, that's going to be next time. For now, though, in between now and then, what we'd like you to do is to head over to our socials, which should be appearing sometime or somewhere at the bottom of the screen. Um, we're on Facebook, Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter. I don't care if you've got a website, Elon. I don't give a damn. It's Twitter. Um, we're on Reddit. We're on LinkedIn. We're on um, Instagram. I'm, I'm guessing. Are you still using the Instagram one? Are you still on there? Uh, it's there. You it's can find there. it if you want. It's there. Uh, or you whatever. can just f- follow me on Instagram. I post shit on there all the time. Yeah. Uh, but even if you're not doing all that, the one thing that you should do is head over to our Patreon page. The yes. link to it is just on the bottom of the screen. There we're going to be posting additional content from the episodes, including longer versions. And you're also going to be getting new episodes a little bit before they go out to the general public. A couple of days, give or take. And this is all for the price of a cup of coffee every single month. You're helping us, the creators to try and put out more creations so it's in your best interest yes lord alone Alan knows you don't get any money from youtube unless you're screaming into the microphone or you mr beast like what is with those thumbnails <laughs> hello mr beast are you finished are you finished yeah. on your round steve so i can do that a little bit going on here um so we've had some talk about guys. your book no, oh, well, I do have a book, actually. It's called uh, The Essential Movies of the 70s that you have never seen, uh, never heard of, or completely forgotten about. Volume 1, it is available on Amazon at this link down here. Uh, the second volume is currently being written. Hopefully, it's going to be available in February. I've just fell a bit behind because I've been a bit busy and had to watch all of these films as well as write the show. This, this is kind of what happens. Um but we have had some people on uh, Facebook who've uh, asked me some questions, and I'll quickly answer them now. Uh, one, when are we going to get Jonas and Joanne back? Jonas and Joanne will be back with us soon enough. They will be popping up on some episodes in the future. Uh, another one uh, is Bill Daly. Bill Daly is going to be back with us shortly. We were discussing earlier today that it is about time we did an episode on the uh, 1998 movie the avengers starring ray fines uma thurman and yes. sean connery because not that avengers not not, not the, the good, good avengers one. the terrible oh. avengers. i think bill has so much he wants to get off his chest about this movie so i think that's an episode that is going to be coming up soon uh yeah. john ashton is going to be rejoining us as well uh he's currently doing reshoots on beverly hills cup for some additional scenes that's coming out this summer uh so we're looking forward to hearing more on that uh, as soon as it comes available and pretty soon, uh, we are going to be rolling in some new guests and some returning guests. So we're, we're just kind of getting started all over again. Thank you very much, everybody, for subscribing. And uh, keep it up. Yes. Uh, well, with that in mind, uh, it is a goodbye from me. Uh, oh, God, I, I've got to leave as well, I guess. Apparently so. <laughs> Clue what that thing was about. I don't know. <laughs>